Today's conversation is brought to you by Child Evangelism Fellowship. CEF is here to serve the church. We can bring training to your church so that your small group of children's workers can grow into a larger group of confident and capable workers. Then we can help you reach children where they are out in your community using party clubs, five-day clubs, and good news clubs in the public schools and elsewhere. This brings children and their families into church. Visit us at cefonline.com slash showme. We tend to move in the direction of the applause. So where people are celebrating us, where we're getting affirmation, we move in that direction. But oftentimes God's purpose for us is in the opposite direction of the applause. Like he calls us into the place where people are like, why are you going over there? That's not the way to go. That's not the thing to do. And God is calling us there um, because that's what he's graced us for. And so intentionality and leadership for me is about being attuned to where God wants me to go at any given moment. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. Nona Jones is a leader in business, tech community, as a pastor at a local church, as an author and speaker. And in our conversation, she shares her story of being victimized to being empowered and offers really great insights on leadership. Here's our conversation. Nona, your ministry, your accomplishments, they're amazing. Your story's a powerful one, displaying God's love and transformational power. Um, Can you share a little bit about your early years and family life and what lessons you've learned from that time? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, Walter, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. You know, I am, um, man, I'm a statistically improbable product of God's grace. I mean, truly I am. Um, you know, I did not grow up in a Christian home. Um, funny enough, uh, my classmate in the sixth grade was the first one to invite me to church. I didn't know what church was. Like, I didn't know where we were going. Um, but just a little piece of my childhood, first and foremost, uh, my mother did not want to have children for various reasons. Uh, she and my father were married for 13 years when she found out that she was pregnant with me and he passed away about, uh, two years into my life. And, um, you know, after that we moved from the North, uh, Northern area of the United States to the South. And my mother had a string of boyfriends that kind of came in and out of her life and my life. And, um, unfortunately at a very young age, I experienced a number of types of abuse and, and trauma, um, which really shaped, my identity, um, so much so that um, at the ages of nine and uh, 11, which are about the same ages as my boys, um, I tried to end my life because I, I didn't know that there was hope. I didn't know anything about what was even after death. I just figured it had to be better than what I was experiencing in life. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, a classmate of mine invited me to church in the sixth grade. This was actually not too long after my second suicide attempt. And uh, the very first sermon that I ever heard, uh, the pastor preached out of, I think it's uh, Psalm 68, where it says, God is a father to the fatherless. And I remember hearing him say that. And I was like, well, I don't have my father. So like, you know, who is God? It was truly 
what I think I needed to hear in order to have my interests peaked. And so at the age of 11, um, I just started to learn more about God and uh, learn more about who, who Jesus was. And at the age of 12, I accepted Jesus as Lord of my life. And I was still the only person in my house going to church. I would get picked up by our youth pastor and um, I was licensed into the gospel ministry at 17 years old. Um, you know, the abuse didn't end at the moment of salvation, um, but I began to have a point of reference about the future that God had for me. And so that's what really gave me gave me hope. And I went on to college and graduated uh, from college. I'm married to an amazing man who is a pastor. And I'm giving you, of course, you know, the Reader's Digest version, but Suffice it to say, the, the last thing I'll add is um, for anyone who's ever worked in social services, there is an assessment. It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Assessment. And what it does is it essentially gives you the probability that a child who has experienced various forms of trauma will have an adverse outcome. So whether that's drug addiction, premature death, incarceration, et cetera, and it's a scale of zero to 10. And I scored an eight. Um, so the fact that I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, it really speaks to the redeeming power of God. And so that is frankly how my childhood has shaped me into the person I am today is when I come across a child who, you know, maybe they're acting out, maybe they're not living up to their potential. My question is not what's wrong with you. My question is what happened to you and, and how do I make sure you understand who you are in God and that this isn't the end. Wow. Nona, what a story of transformation. I mean, the the grief that must have been there as you process that, and yet the glory of seeing that transformation, your story holds it, it, the whole gospel in it. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you for sharing that. And, and, and you've taken these things and God has transformed them and you've entered into all sorts of places that yeah. not only are you out of the adverse outcomes category? Mm -hmm. You are in the advanced outcomes category <laughs> now. It's I mean, true. You've true. walked into various spaces of leadership, first appointed to an executive role at 23 at a Fortune 100 company, C-suite positions and nonprofit sectors, respected mm -hmm. voice and juvenile justice reform a pastor in your own right, along with your husband, and you lead global faith-based strategy for Meta. Uh, okay, that's a lot. <laughs> how have you navigated these different callings and areas of influence? Oh, man, that's such a good question, Walter. Well, I will say this. I notice that oftentimes um, a, a believer who happens to work in you know, a secular environment um, they tend to compartmentalize their life. So, you know, you have a work self, you have a, a church self, you have a family self, um, and each of these kind of iterations of yourself don't typically blend with the other. But I try to live an integrated life such that um, whether someone is meeting me in a business meeting or they're meeting me on stage uh, preaching at a church or meeting me at the park with my children, I am the same person at all times. And so what that means is the way I navigate it is I, I am 100% who I am at all times. I'm 100% a disciple of Jesus Christ at all times. Uh, my colleagues know that. Um, as a matter of fact, I've taken some of our uh, highest level executives to church, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's funny because I had a conversation with one of them one time 
Um, we were going through a really challenging uh, season as a company. It feels like that's every other week, but this was one particular time where we were going through a challenging season. And after a meeting, um, there was a lot of frustration in the room and, and a lot of just angst. And after a meeting, I, I went to my uh, colleague, you know, higher level executive than, than me. And I said, you know, hey, how can I pray for you? Because this person was in the thick of it, you know, truly in the thick of the chaos. And uh, she turned to me and she said, no one's ever offered to pray for me before. Now, this is someone who, um, you know, different faith, tradition, different culture, um, but I offered to pray for her and, and she was just amazed, but I did that because I'm always wearing the hat of my faith while I'm wearing the hat of leadership, while I'm wearing the hat of wife and mom and, um, you know, voice for, for the church. So that's how I navigate it is I live an integrated life. I don't compartmentalize and, um, just try to bring God glory in all that I do. You know, it's often easy to think that there are certain environments that are very post-Christian or very secular and therefore very hostile to any influence spiritually. And yet you're describing something where um, prayer is a gift that's welcomed. I mean, you are bringing spirituality in and it is welcomed. Mm -hmm. And that's deeply encouraging to hear. Um, but that that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and, and so... As I uh, think about leadership and the challenges that exist, um, you've had to un—you've uh, you, had to kind of pursue another another set of challenges, not just the sacred secular divide, but the gender divide that often exists. And and oh, yeah. I'm curious uh, about your experience as a woman in leadership, both both inside and outside of the church. Yeah. Whew. Boy, did you not touch on the third rail there? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's interesting is I've experienced, um, it's, I call it, and I think uh, President Bush might have even coined this phrase, but it's uh, the tyranny of low expectations where, um, where people, because, you know, because I'm a woman, you know, add on to that, uh, the, the variable of being a woman of color, I think people have low expectations. And so um, they're sometimes surprised when I have an opinion or uh, when I can actually articulate a thought. Um, they're surprised when I you know, raise my hand and I'm actually you know, um, uh, forthcoming in, in my thought. And so I have faced some challenges in that. Like I, I remember uh, getting some feedback once from a, uh, uh, a man, well-meaning man, I'm sure. Uh, people usually say that when they're about to say something you know, <laughs> pejorative, but uh, well-meaning man, bless his heart. Uh, he said to me, he said, you know, you should really pick your battles. And he said it because uh, we had had a meeting. The meeting was pretty contentious, but uh, by all parties, it wasn't just me, but it was pretty contentious. And um, I was making a point because there was something I was deeply convinced about uh, and I wasn't willing to just give it up and, you know, move, move on. And so he said, you know, you should pick your battles. And I told him, I said, you're absolutely right. I do. Which is why I was as um, forthcoming as I was, because this is a battle that I'm willing to fight. So there's that on the um, kind of in the professional sense. Um, and I think in ministry, you know, there's just there's so many different, uh, you know, doctrinal outlooks on um, on women in ministry and, you know, and what capacity can we serve? What capacity can we not serve? And, um, you know, I, I do a lot with the, the YouVersion Bible app, um, do devotionals on the Bible app pretty consistently. And without fail, 
every time one of my devotions uh, is shared, you know, no matter how doctrinally sound the devotion is, um, someone uh, will respond. And it's not always men. Sometimes it's women. Someone will send a message to my, my team through my website, basically saying, you know, you're a woman, you shouldn't be, you know, speaking. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where if I did not know better, I, I would most likely yield to their criticism and be silent. Um, but because I know better, because I understand biblical context, and I understand Bible history, and I understand, um, you know, that, you know, when, when God said your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, he, he didn't put a caveat, your daughters shall prophesy by themselves in a closet in a whisper. Um, you know, those, those types of things I understand. So I'm able to, to kind of let it roll off my back. And just uh, my response has always been, well, I tell you what, when we stand before God, I'll give an account for the souls that uh, I led to faith. You'll give an account for the souls you led to faith. And we'll just see what God has to say. And that's where I leave it. Mm. That's challenging area, this area of teaching as a, as a woman leading. Um, oh, yeah. But you have also entered into this, not only as a woman, but a woman of color. And so the area of racial justice, I wanted yeah. to turn some attention to, you know, you offer leadership in this area as well. And, and we'll be hearing more from you about this topic at Flourish, our conference in October. But what does it mean for you to lead on a complex issue, just generally, yeah. much less this issue particularly? Yeah, I think, I think in general, um, the way that I try to approach complexity is I try to approach it with the intent to understand before, uh, you know, seeking to be understood. And so, you know, this issue in particular, of course, is not only complex, but there's also a tremendous amount of emotion around it. And so what I try to do is I really try to understand, you know, people's point of view and, and really try to understand, well, why did you arrive at that conclusion? Because oftentimes, once you, if you ask why enough, um, you will really get down to the psychology of a person's um, ideology. And, and that to me is what matters more. Um, it's easy to spew talking points. It's easy to regurgitate what you heard somebody say or, you know, reshare a post you saw on social media, but really deeply understanding well, why do you hold that position? I think it's both instructive for the person and for the hearer, you know, to, and I think, that's one of the challenges we have is we have, and, and, you know, the Bible says, you know, only by pride cometh contention. I think we have a tremendous amount of pride when it comes to complexity, believing that we see all sides and we understand everything. But the, I, I like to use a beach ball analogy when I think about complex issues. So if you've ever seen a beach ball, there's a blue strip, red strip, you know, white strip, yellow strip, green strip. And we tend to live our lives on one strip of the beach ball. And so what happens is because of that, if I'm on the green strip and I live my life on the green strip, if someone tells me something about blue, I will argue them down because all I've ever known is green. And it's in, and I think to me, it's incumbent upon the person on the blue strip to take the hand of the person on the green strip and say, hey, will you just follow me for a second? Let me just show you something. <laughs> And then they can walk over to the blue strip. And now the person can either say, oh, wow, I never knew blue existed. Or they can say, oh, well, this is just another shade of green. And that's often what happens. <laughs> it's like, I really don't care what you're saying, what the data statistics trends show. You know, I'm still going to hold to my opinion. But that's how I tend to approach complexities. I try to approach it with understanding. 
mm. or to gain understanding, I should say. And you've seen this work? I have. I have. So, um, you know, uh, organization that I, I founded in 2020 called Faith and Prejudice, um, you know, it's an organization that is 100 percent focused on equipping and uh, mobilizing local churches for the work of racial healing and uh, dealing with racial uh, inequity. And what we have discovered is through our social media, we do a lot of, you know, challenging posts, just really trying to get people to think differently. And typically people will come at us like, oh, this is wrong. They'll use, you know, catchphrases like, oh, this is Marxism and this is socialism and this is communism. And, and what we do is we always just ask, we engage like, well, hey, well, what do you mean by that? And we have gotten into so many conversations. And when I say we, I don't necessarily mean me. We have a team, uh, but I do sometimes. But we've gotten into so many conversations with people that started as just a shouting match, like started as them yelling and calling us names to get into a point where it's like, you know, this was such a respectful conversation that you've earned the runway to change my mind. And that's that's the ethos that we have. It's like, look, our our goal is not to be right. Our goal is to to do what's right. And that's that's there's a difference there, right? It's like, well, I want to be right, so I'm going to argue you down, or do I want to do what's right? And let's really explore that together. So yeah, we've had tangible con like conversations with people that started as super hostile, super aggressive, not listening at all, calling us names that ended with, man, this was, this was really a powerful dialogue. And I'm so grateful for the chance to talk with you. And, and that, that is the whole point of our work. Mm. You've given us a number of really rich things. I love this, you know, the difference between being right and wanting to be right versus wanting to do right. The, the call to listen and to empathy and to walk with others. I mean, these are really fantastic uh, directions that all of us could use. Um, what other advice would you offer to people who sense that God is calling them to speak or to lead in areas that are difficult, whether it's racial justice yeah. or some other areas, especially in our polarized context? Yeah, that's that's a good question, Walter. And I think for me, everything has to start with prayer. You have to you have to pray first and just ask God for grace. Because, you know, anything that's, and, and let me take a step back. These challenging issues are not issues of flesh and blood. They are spiritual issues. And what happens is because we make them flesh and blood issues when they're really spiritual issues is we end up um, having carnal strategies. So basically we immediately go to either coalition building or sharing things on social media and all that, take a step back and really pray and ask God to give you eyes to, to see what's happening spiritually because we're engaged in spiritual warfare and we have to start there, really start with prayer. Then from prayer, we're asking God for, for wisdom. We're asking God to help us uh, see where he is moving and where he is working so that we can lend our time, our talents, our treasure to where he's already moving. I believe that God is always moving uh, in and through those controversial, challenging issues, but sometimes we don't see it either because we're so emotionally blinded by our opinion um, or because we think the issue is so big that there's no way we can have an impact. 
And so we just disqualify ourselves. So ask God for wisdom to figure out how to plug into what he's already doing. Um, but then I think lastly, I would suggest is we have to have a posture of humility. And that's that's difficult because when you start getting into spiritual warfare, um, I would say that Satan's number one tactic, his number one tactic is to trigger pride in us because the Bible says that God resists the proud, right? And so his number one tactic is he says, well, if I can just get them to operate in pride, God will resist them and their efforts will become ineffectual. So we have to operate in humility and love and compassion, but we can't allow ourselves to be paralyzed. I think sometimes when it comes to challenging issues, we become paralyzed in our analysis of the issue because we can mistake motion for progress. Like, well, if I'm talking about the issue, we're making progress. Well, actually, probably not. Um, we, we pray, we humble ourselves, we strategize with God's wisdom, and then we act so that we can actually affect change. Mm. Hearing you, I'm so excited that you're going to be with us at the Flourish Conference, <laughs> this, this new conference that the NAA is doing in Nashville, October 4 and 5. And we're going to be diving into a lot of these complex issues. Uh specific issues like racial justice, uh, yeah. uh, abortion, a pro-life ethic, sexuality, other issues. And uh, for those listening, you can get more information, you get registration. Uh, we encourage you to attend nae.org slash flourish. Uh, Nona, you're going to be presenting alongside Derwin Gray, Rebecca mm -hmm. McLaughlin, Jimmy Miato, Ed Stetzer, many others. What is your hope for a conference like this or when you speak at conferences like this? Well, can I first say, and, and I mean this so sincerely, I am just deeply humbled to have been invited to even speak um, and, and be a voice because I think what, what you're doing, what the National Association of Evangelicals is doing is it takes courage and it really takes an eye for the future of what it means to be a Christian. And so I want to applaud you for that. And I want to say I'm super humbled to be a part. Um, what my hope is that everyone who comes, again, comes with a heart of humility um, and, and comes ready to receive, um, you know, let's, let's, you know, check agendas at the door, check even ideologies at the door, and let's just come with an open heart and an open mind to receive what God is saying to and through um, not only the speakers, but also the attendees. I think it's important for us to carve out time to uh, connect with one another and just, hey, what, you know, what is God speaking to you about these issues? And, and really use this as a moment uh, for us to, to try to push for alignment as believers. So my hope is that uh, everyone who comes will come with anticipation that God is going to speak and that he's going to give us some tools that we can start using to build his kingdom uh, with love and wisdom uh, once we once we leave the gathering. Mm. Clearly, as you reflect on issues, there's a thoughtfulness to it, but that thoughtfulness seems to be built upon an intentionality. I mean, you have pursued certain things with intention. You lead with intention. So what does intentional leadership look like for you on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm. Well, I think it, it starts with, with clarity of purpose. And for me, you know, I, and I said this earlier, but I truly believe that my faith, my faith is not something that I do on the weekends. It's, it's who I am. 
And so that clarity of purpose, realizing that as a, a person of faith, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, um, my, my intentionality comes from that. And sometimes I think uh, I made a post about this actually recently. We tend to move in the direction of the applause. So where people are celebrating us, where we're getting affirmation, we move in that direction. But oftentimes God's purpose for us is in the opposite direction of the applause. Like he calls us into the place where people are like, why are you going over there? That's not the way to go. That's not the thing to do. And God is calling us there um, because that's what he's graced us for. And so intentionality and leadership for me is about being attuned to where God wants me to go at any given moment. And again, I know that it very well may be in the direction where there's not any applause happening. Um, but I want to make sure that I'm, I'm prayerful, um, that I'm, I'm always following his leading and his prompting. And in the times when I haven't done that, in the times where I've been one of those kind of drifting leaders, like, oh, everybody's celebrating me over here. Let me go over here. Um, I've ended up overwhelmed and exhausted and fatigued. Um, but whenever I operate in that intentional space of purpose, then I feel the grace of God on my life, even when other people aren't celebrating what I'm doing. Mm. You've mentioned these issues of uh, challenge, pride being a temptation of leadership, uh, and you know, drifting to the applause is is a form of seeking mm -hmm. that kind of prideful uh, affirmation. There's a dimension to pride, though, that I, I want to tease out a little bit, um, and that is comparison, the mm -hmm. temptation to compare ourselves. No matter what level of leadership, there is a temptation to compare ourselves with others. And why is the environment that we often serve in, whether at a secular company or within the church, why is the environment often primed for comparison? <laughs> well, um, the fact that my next book is called Killing Comparison <laughs> means that this is the topic that I'm so passionate about. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like the reason why comparison plagues so many leaders is because, and I'm going to say this and it's going to sound weird, but I'm, I'm just going to say it the way I'm thinking of it. It's because we struggle with insecurity and we don't want to admit it. Like if I was to ask most leaders, are you insecure? Say, of course not. I'm not insecure, but insecurity fundamentally is when you secure your identity to an insecure foundation. So let's just say uh, it's, you know, academic credentials. I know some people that if you don't refer to them as doctor, they will have a problem <laughs> with you. I know some people who have secured their identity to, you know, their marital status. And so they take tremendous amount of pleasure from being married. There are others, um, and I think this is one thing that pastors particularly struggle with, is, you know, we'll secure our identity to um, attendance on Sunday. And this is why so many pastors felt depressed during the pandemic, because they were receiving um, a sense of worth and validation from the number of people that were coming to see them on Sunday. And if we're honest about these things, I think that's why it, it creates a breeding ground for comparison. Because once I secure my identity to any of these insecure foundations, then I start to look at people who have more or better, and I feel I start to feel this sense of, you know, oh my gosh, I, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to measure up. 
Similar with work. I see it all the time, you know, colleagues who have secured their identity to their job title. And so somebody gets a promotion and now they're viewing the other person's success as their failure. It's like, well, they got a promotion, so then I don't feel as good. And I think that's where it comes from. It really is about identity. And where are you taking your sense of identity from? Um, because if it's not from the, the firm and sure foundation of who God says you are, regardless of people's approval, you're going to be insecure. Social media is a place where comparison <laughs> happens. Sure. And so I'd yeah. be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about um, your work in social media mm -hmm. and your leadership role at Meta. What advice do you have for people and how they should engage in social media, especially because it is a place of deep, yeah. deep and often damaging comparison? I love this question. Yes. So, um, yeah, social media is typically blamed for causing insecurity and, and, and what I what I admit is I'm like, look, social media absolutely exposes our insecurity, but it's not the source of our insecurity. And the reason I say that is two people can look at the same post. One person can be inspired by it. Another person can be what I call expired by it. So one person is like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome that they had this incredible event. I'll just make it as a you know pastor. They had this incredible event. 5,000 people came out. That's so awesome. Another person will look at it and be like, man, I only had 50 people come out to my event. We must not be doing that good, right? And so my suggestion to people is, is really twofold. One, we have to start dealing with our heart. And really, the, one of the questions that, that uh, the Holy Spirit gave to me as I was going through my own journey to really get free from toxic comparison is uh, I, I had a situation happen that caused me to ask questions like, why wasn't I chosen? Why wasn't I invited? You know, why was I overlooked? And the Holy Spirit asked me, no, no, why does it matter? Why, do, why does that matter? And so we have to start asking ourselves these questions. Like, why does their attendance matter to me? Like, what does that say about me? So that's one thing. I think um, from a structural standpoint, I highly recommend that if you're following people who are constantly expiring you, unfollow, mute, you know, get them off your newsfeed. Like you just, you don't need that in your life. And I'll say this, I've, I've heard people say things like, well, but if I do that, won't that mean that I'm weak? That'll mean that you're protecting your heart. <laughs> That'll mean that you know yourself, you're self-aware um, and it's okay. You have to guard your eyes to guard your heart. So yeah, don't, I, I call it weeding your feed. Weed your feed. Take out anything that's expiring you, that's triggering toxic comparison, that's triggering insecurity, um, so that you can make yourself uh, healthy and whole. Mm. In the history of the church, there have been moments where technology has been used uh, incredibly to advance the cause of the gospel. I mean, even the writing of scripture, the movement mm -hmm. from scrolls to book form right. actually enabled the writing of a Bible. Yes. And then, of course, the Gutenberg press enabled the dissemination of the word of God. And, we're at a point where there's obviously an explosion of technology. So what are some of the ways that leaders can leverage technology for their ministry? I think it starts with um, thinking about it as, as digital discipleship. Like, I think we have to have that framework because sometimes when people think about technology, it's, it's thought about as very transactional, like, you know, social media, I make a post, you like it, we move on. Uh, text, I send you a message, maybe you respond. And so it becomes super transactional. But discipleship is really about the relational maturation of your faith. 
And so if you think about your social media and your text messaging and your emails as you are in relationship with these people, now it, it really helps you to see that you are now a disciple maker. And so as a leader, you have to steward all of these platforms in such a way that you're discipling the people who are who are following you. And so I like to think of it that way. And I'm super intentional on anything that I share, anything that I post. The question I'm always asking is, okay, how, how is this discipling the people who have chosen to follow me? How is this pushing them to deeper levels of uh, maturity in their faith? Uh, whether it's, you know, conviction or inspiration or, you know, just teaching and education. And I think having that framework will help leaders um, to lean into this technology in a way that honors God and really helps people to grow in their faith. Mm, this notion of discipleship really is focused in on cultivating uh, future generations. You know, what 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 is the work that you are doing for future generations that give you that gives you hope, Nona. What brings you hope when you think about this next generation of leaders, of disciples? So the thing that gives me hope is also the thing that gives me concern. <laughs> um, the thing that gives me hope is that this next generation is like they they are not of they're not, even though it seems like they are, they're not superficial. Like it seems like they're superficial because on social media, like they're just you know sharing posts and things, but they don't take things just at face value. They ask questions. And if the answers don't make sense to them, you know, they don't just accept it. I think in many ways where our faith has been and continues to be challenged is that sometimes we've accepted things at face value that weren't right. And we just accepted it and we've kind of, you know, perpetuated it. And so now we get to this generation and they're questioning it and we don't have good answers because we just accepted it. And so I think what's good about this generation is they do ask questions and, you know, they want to push the thinking. Um, and where that's a challenge, of course, uh, is for, for us is, you know, we need to be able to have the answers and be willing to have the hard conversations. And we can no longer just say, you know, because I said so. You know, we have to be willing to engage. And I will say this generation is facing a tremendous amount of confusion um, because there are so many conflicting messages going on right now, um, whether it's about issues of identity, sexuality, like all of this, you know, it's like, well, there is no sense of this is true. Now it's this is my truth, but there can't be my truth because there has to be a, a sense of shared truth. That's what truth is. It's not just true to me, it's true to all of us. So um, I think that's that's what's what's giving me hope is that this generation, once they believe something, they really believe it because they've done the work to get to that point of belief. It's not a blind belief. Thank you. Our guest on today's conversation has been Nona Jones. I'm Walter Kim. And on behalf of us all, thank you, Nona. National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.